Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Previously on There Goes the Neighborhood. People would come in literally and hire somebody to go out on the street and get into a fight in front of your house. All right? To scare you from leaving. They came one day, asked, do you want to sell? She says, no. They came the next day, you want to sell? She says, no. They get up in the morning, and the front door is on the floor. Says, you want to sell now? So they took the money and ran. City governments have been largely absent from the ghettos. Their chief presence has taken the form of a policeman. And it has been his unhappy lot to be the lone representative of the man, Whitey, the Hunkies. It's a battle between Italian kids who've always lived there. This is their turf. And black kids who are newly moving in. When we built the middle class in this country, we made decisions about who was going to benefit. And we decided black people weren't a part of that. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. I think I understand people's frustration, to say the least. It's been astounding how quickly this city has changed and how many people have been displaced. But, you know, the biblical reference, it is better to light a single candle than to curse the darkness. There's a lot of people cursing the darkness now, and I feel for them. But we better find something practical we can do to keep working people in the city and keep low-income families in the city and let this still be a city for everyone. And this plan is the best way to do that. That's the man with the plan that is going to reshape New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio. His affordable housing proposal has just become law and gentrifying cities around the country have taken notice. Their leaders are asking, what can we do to control housing costs? Well, listen up, cities of America. We've got the details. I'm Kai Wright, an editor at The Nation magazine, and this week, my WNYC colleagues and I are going to look closely at de Blasio's rezoning, how it works, who it's aimed at, and what the changes will look like on the ground. We'll also try to figure out who's left out. Then we'll head into parts of Brooklyn where developers and realtors have been making record profits with no obligation to build any affordable housing. But first, we'll meet the enviable Elizabeth Greyfrath, who timed the market just right. I'll tell my real estate war story, which I'm very happy about, actually, because I was a, I personally triumphed. We're talking in a pub near her job in Lower Manhattan, to which she now commutes each day from her dream home in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Elizabeth grew up in Westwood, New Jersey, but had always wanted to live in Brooklyn. Her grandmother and mother were born there, and she needed to experience it for herself. In the spring of 2012, she finally got her chance. My husband did well on a book contract, and we had a little pile of money to put into an apartment. Like a lot of young, new Brooklynites, she wasn't poor, but it's not like she was rich. And she worked for a nonprofit. So if she was going to get into the market, she had to be both creative and aggressive. I had seen a listing for an apartment in a co-op building at 960 Sterling Place, and I went, I saw the building, I found the historic floor plans for the building at Columbia University. It was big, it was great, it was listed at 275 and I called my broker 
and I told her, listen, we're going to the open house, bring an empty offer sheet because we're just going to fill in a number once we scope out who else is there and how much we think we can get this place for it. Elizabeth leaned in, as they say. She didn't let Brooklyn's raging housing market scare her away, but instead gathered up all her professional skills and courage and got to work. And like she said, she won. We paid $305,000 for our apartment. It took four months from being in contract to closing. And during that time, I think condos started to go up. We probably made money while waiting to be in contract. Now, just four years later, apartments in her co-op are selling for more than twice what she paid. So it's probably like the best financial decision we've ever and will ever make in our lives. Which is great. But note something in her story. Elizabeth's own victory would be totally impossible today precisely because the value has gone up so much, so fast. It's complicated and sad. Like, across the street from our apartment, there is these apartment with these windows that had these blinds that have been crappy. They've been broken and busted up. I noticed that there were, like, brand-new blinds and curtains. So at first I was like, oh, they finally fixed those blinds. And then I was like, wait, it probably wasn't the person living there who fixed those blinds. There's probably somebody new there. I got myself caught in, like, a weird mental situation. So this week, we are going to get over into that weird mental situation, too. After all, a major theory of community development says that people like Elizabeth are a good thing for neighborhoods. She's now on the community board. She heads her co-op board. She's engaged and she cares. But is all of her drive, conscientious though it may be, the fuel for a gentrification machine that is gobbling up Brooklyn? We'll get to some of the forces that drive that machine a little later. But first, the mayor says he's got this figured out. So let's get into the details. First, I spoke with City Limits editor Jarrett Murphy, who has been reporting on housing in New York City for over 20 years to understand the bigger picture. It starts with vacancy rates. The city's vacancy rate is somewhere around 3.5%. Meaning 3.5% of apartments in the, in the city. At any one time are empty. And that is considered too low. You need to have a certain amount of liquidity. And so the city actually has been in what is legally known as a housing emergency for decades. Which theoretically leads to all of the housing problems we've already heard about. Skyrocketing rents, homeless shelters filling up, families doubling and tripling up. This is simple, right? Supply and demand. So the answer should be simple too. More supply. Except... It's not. One thing that a lot of people can't understand. So I live in Bed-Stuy. I'm walking around. Everywhere I turn around, I see another freaking condo building, another building going up. They're building, building, building all over the city. And then I hear, oh, there's a housing shortage. How do these two things exist at the same time? Why wouldn't all of these buildings in my neighborhood mean that rent is going down instead of up? This is a central point of debate when it comes to New York's housing market, is there really one housing market? Can we really say that the guy who wants to buy the $2 million apartment overlooking the Hudson River and the person struggling for a one-room apartment somewhere in the Northeast Bronx, are they really part of the same market? No, they are not. So you can't just look at overall vacancy rates. you got to look at vacancy rates in each price tier. At the higher end, there is much more housing to choose from. And the lower end, if you're trying to pay less than $800 a month, less than $1,000 a month, it's a much tighter, tighter market. The reason is that for developers, it is worth building housing priced for that higher group, even if it takes you longer to subscribe those apartments, even if it takes you longer to flip that property to someone else, because the ultimate payoff is going to be that much greater. 
De Blasio's solution to that problem, and it's arguably the most ambitious effort in the nation, comes down to one thing, inclusionary zoning. Now, that's a wonky phrase to describe a simple idea. If you want to put up a taller building, and that's where you get your bang for the buck, both for profit margins and the city's vacancy rate problem, then you have to set aside a percentage of your building for affordable housing. Again, simple, right? Maybe not so much. Jim O'Grady set in on a Hunter College class that used oversized Lego pieces and a neighborhood map to try and rezone the neighborhood in the image of the mayor's plan. And as usual, when human beings get involved, things become complicated. Because, Kai, human beings are paradoxical and prone to contradiction, especially when facing difficult decisions about where they live. A rezoning is when the city changes the rules. So it's not actually changing any of the buildings, right? It's just changing the rules about what can get built where and how big it can be. Ingrid Haftel is with the Center for Urban Pedagogy, a group of civic super nerds. She stands at the head of a table that holds a model-sized neighborhood of streets and stores and subway stops and buildings made of Lego blocks. The grad students gather around, peering down like gods or city planners. Same thing, really. Haftel is leading them through the development game, a game that obviously plays out every day for real around New York City. Um, So... What do we think about rezoning and allowing for more development here? Do we want it? No. No? Why not? <laughs> no. The consensus in the classroom and at community board meetings in recent months is no. To a lot of people, rezoning means bureaucrats drawing lines on maps that allow big buildings to block the sun and more people to compete for seats on the subway at rush hour. It means too much change too fast. But then Haftel asks the class about the de Blasio plan. Do we want more affordable housing? Yeah. 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 Yeah, we do. But arguably, and this argument is raging right now, you can't say yes to affordable housing and no to rezoning. Not if you want to create the thousands of new affordable units that New York City needs. This tabletop simulation mimics a version of the mayor's plan. So the students must have 25% affordable housing. That comes to 12 Legos of affordable and 36 Legos of market rate housing. Each Lego represents two stories. The bottom line is this. The students have to bulk up their little Lego neighborhood of 64 square blocks with 100 stories of new building. Yeah, and this is what we're going to build out. How's that look to you? Not very good. Not very good. Looks like it's changing the neighborhood. It'll definitely change the neighborhood. Not all at once, like in this exercise, but over time it could do that. Anyway, do it. We've got an empty lot here, you know. Oh, yeah. What about? Uh, but there's no more affordable units to go right by the museum. I feel like I want the affordable units to be at least close. They're killing the green space. Oh, leave it. Maybe we should have a park there. There are many ideas, but not much agreement. Hands holding Legos and the fate of hundreds of residents hover indecisively over the board. And now they're running out of time. (laughs) Then someone starts talking like a big-shot developer. And that's hilarious. I think we should just make one gigantic tower with market rate. (laughs) Afterward, the class gazes down on its handiwork. Regrets? They have a few. If I could go back, I wouldn't have done this here because it would have been nicer to see these different income levels fairly distributed. So how does this compare to actual rezoning? Well, rezoning is similar to the game, 
Except billions of dollars are at stake. The character of beloved neighborhoods is up for grabs. And the very essence of New York, who gets to live where, hangs in the balance. Other than that, it's easy. You've made these hard decisions, right? And you've considered all this stuff. Do you have the slightest bit of sympathy for city officials now? (laughs) You laugh. I guess sympathy is too much to ask for officials presiding over a process that, even if it goes well, brings disruption and leaves a lot of people angry and dissatisfied. Because as a student reminds the class, rezoning is politics, and politics is about more than just working toward abstract goals. It's also about the um, social impact that these decisions have on a neighborhood, and it's again going back to the culture, to the emotional side of the neighborhood, which is difficult to quantify, but it's important to the neighbors. Culture and emotion. Legos don't include those things. But if you look at New York as a whole, you see that from the beginning, it's been all about growth. The whole point of Manhattan's street grid, laid down in 1811, was to promote the orderly and rapid spread of real estate development. And that's true of many American cities. But New York was the first place with a comprehensive zoning code. A hundred years ago, in 1916, for the first time, buildings were limited by height and they had to be stepped back to allow air and light to reach down to the street. The code also zoned neighborhoods by use. People go here, industry goes there. Developers balked at first. But the results of the zoning rules proved so popular that property values went up. And then the developers were like, oh yeah, we can work with this. And developers have been manipulating the zoning process ever since. Still, as Mayor de Blasio says, we got to try something. He's rezoning as many as 15 neighborhoods, starting with East New York. And as Jim said, zoning is old. Every inch of New York City is zoned. But de Blasio's innovation is to use zoning not just to facilitate growth, but to control it. That's new. I asked WNYC reporter Jessica Gould, who has been in the weeds covering this debate, to explain how it all works. Well, it's interesting you mentioned being in the weeds because... That's kind of why they've chosen the zoning, because it is tied to the land. So in the past, other cities in New York City itself have used financing, tax credits and bonds to incentivize affordable housing. But say you get a tax credit for a building, and then you sell the building, and the next person who has it doesn't feel like they need the tax credit, then they may not keep the affordable housing there. So this is a way to keep it tied to the land, and as the administration has emphasized, permanently affordable. Wow. And so the permanently part, that is a consequence of the fact that you can't build anything there ever unless you follow these rules because it's tied to the land. Right. I mean, the other thing they would emphasize is mandatory. So what this plan does is if you're in a rezoned area, you have to build affordable housing as part of it, whether it's a private rezoning or one of these big rezonings that the city is doing neighborhood by neighborhood. And just explain that very quickly, this mandatory part, you have to build. I think people hear that and it's like, what do you mean you have to build? The way somebody explained it to me is that Ultimately, in the city of skyscrapers, it's about height. The taller you can build a building, the more money you can make as a developer. And in exchange for that, it's a trade-off. You're saying you can have more height and thus more money, but 
you have to build affordable housing as part of this. We've been talking about this as a housing problem, but they actually see the rezoning plan, at least in East New York, as more than a housing thing. They're trying to accomplish something more broad than that. Help me understand that. For example, in East New York, it's about rebuilding a neighborhood. So it's housing, but it's also a more holistic approach. They have their tailored housing plan, which is a little different from the overall housing plan for the city. And then they want to create a new 1,000-seat school and a new job center, expand parks, make it more pedestrian-friendly. And then they have legal help for tenants so that they can hopefully stay in the neighborhood. All of this is part of the effort to build a cohesive, stronger neighborhood. And We've talked about the ways in which the neighborhood became both racially segregated and economically segregated, presumably also reintegrate the neighborhood in some ways. They're building thousands of new units. And so we can only expect that that's going to mean new people and different people than the people who live there now. And so this all sounds very great. There's going to be new people and new money and new housing. And people have not been super fond of it, as we have reported in East New York. Why isn't this being received as as mana? So most people in East New York make less than $31,000 a year. And yet the plan says if you build, you have to build for people who make 40 something About 40. And, you so know, there's a gap. Yeah. The city says that they're going to be doing things to target people who make less. But that's where the anxiety is. So the mayor's in a victory lap about this. We've just approved the plan, at least citywide. They're feeling good about it. They say it is key to their goal of addressing the tale of two cities. So they think this is huge. Something that somebody said to me today that was really interesting was, you know, whether or not this is actually progressive. Yes, it is the most ambitious, broadest, strongest housing plan of its kind in the country. That's what the advocates say, even the ones who are critical. But the problem is that it is still targeting mostly people who are in the middle third of the income range in the city. And at a time when incomes are becoming more and more stratified and the mayor wants to address inequality, they're concerned that not enough is being done for the really low-income people. We've talked about this. That's the concern for people like Joshua Jacobo, who we met in previous episodes. The only ones that could afford this rent is people that's not from New York. Okay, and my income doesn't even give enough for a room in East New York. So how the hell is going to give me for an apartment? People who are barely making it in New York City are worried and distrustful. Because ultimately, all of this, the public investment, the new zoning rules, the efforts to protect small businesses, none of it guarantees that the market won't overwhelm the plan. So we've been focused a lot on East New York so far in this podcast, but we're going to leave there for a bit and look at some other Brooklyn neighborhoods, places where development arrived without the kind of rezoning the mayor has proposed and where changes came hard and fast. When we come back, D.W. Gibson takes us down to Prospect Lefferts Gardens and Flatbush, two neighborhoods where money is pouring in from all over the world. People are letting us know what they think about our podcast and the way gentrification is affecting their lives. We got this in our mailbox from Emily Duff. The 
The mayor's plan to rezone East New York and 14 other neighborhoods is designed to control the gentrification machine as it steamrolls through the city. But how does that machine actually work? And really, can it be controlled? D.W. Gibson has some details. As other markets are not doing as well, the U.S. and especially New York City, and therefore Brooklyn, is a safe haven for stability. That's Boaz Galat from Brooklyn Capital, who we met a couple of weeks ago. And his company, publicly traded in Israel, backed by investors from around the world, exemplifies the flow of global capital into Brooklyn. So I literally yesterday sat with the German pension fund and said, oh, Brooklyn, we love Brooklyn. And Boaz is just one player in a crowded field of hedge funds and investment groups. One more recent newcomer is Achilles, a real estate company based in Sweden that buys, builds, and manages properties from around the world. They opened a New York office in 2014 and hired Kunal Chothani to run it. Kunal was born and raised in New York. And if you stand on the northern edge of Bryant Park across from the Grace Building, you'll see the spot where he used to run a newsstand with his father. I demanded the minimum wage when I was six years old. His parents immigrated from Gujarat, India, to Jackson Heights in Queens. And Kunal went from the Bryant Park newsstand to college to a successful career with a couple of U.S. real estate firms before getting snatched up by Achilles. So far, he's focused on buildings in some of Brooklyn's fastest-changing neighborhoods like Flatbush and Crown Heights, and he always knows exactly what components are necessary to maximize capitalization on his buildings. We are looking for buildings that provide people as little as a 35-minute commute. Achilles wants undervalued buildings that could use more care. Brooklyn is full of them. They like to make improvements, renovated apartments, new lobbies, new boilers, more bike storage. And by law, a portion of these expenses can be tacked on to rents. As leases come up for renewal, some longtime tenants can't afford the higher rates. Whether it's staying within 35 minutes of the job centers or waiting for tips from foreclosure court. There's a range of players, and they all operate differently in the neighborhood markets that they enter. But there is one thing that unifies nearly all of them, real estate agents. There is an aggressive broker community in New York City. The world of real estate agents is crowded and competitive. In Brooklyn, over the last five years, you know, depending on the neighborhood, we're seeing 20% returns year over year. If you stay at the front edge of where people are about to move next, you can be looking at 35, 40% return every year. That's Damani Moksabani. He became an agent three years ago. He started out as a home buyer, but he learned so much about the Brooklyn real estate market that a friend who works as an agent offered to mentor him. They've been working together ever since. There's lots of funds that are being set up internationally that are bringing 50, 100, 200 million dollars in search of opportunity for real estate in Brooklyn. Namani now operates in a world with these types of investors. Not bad for a guy who came to Flatbush to buy reggae records during his teenage DJ days. He's 41 now, and as we walk the streets of Flatbush, where he says he's done at least a dozen deals, he looks right at home. We walk into a new bakery on Rogers Avenue, and the owner greets him with a fist bump. Congratulations. Amani and his wife, she's half Bulgarian and half Sri Lankan, moved to the neighborhood four years ago. He refers to his family as camouflage gentrifiers. On my side, it's African, South African in particular. 
And my mom is Jewish, but her ancestors were from Germany. And when I walk down the street, people don't see a white guy. I'm more like Barack, right? So you see him, and people only will describe him as a black president. But he's just as much a white president as he is a black president. His experience allows him to speak in a way that white people can understand because he's lived in that world. But he still has the experience of being a black person. And, and that's why I call it a camouflage. Because when I walk down the street, people don't see me as a white gentrifier. And a lot of the things that I do are probably more similar to a white gentrifier than to a person who currently lives in the community. There's a connotation of gentrifying being a bad thing, right? And I think there are dynamics of gentrification that have negative effects. Absolutely. And there's sometimes where it's white folks who are actually bringing positive effects. Like, I don't think the intentions of people is baked into their skin color. It's like, who is the person? Nemani and his wife bought a towering Victorian home on Linden Boulevard. He paid $950,000, and it was a financial stretch, so he had to rent out a portion of the house. My wife and I were kind of like, oh, well, so this is like a good house for now, and it's also an investment property. But the offers started coming in as soon as they arrived. Like many Brooklyn homeowners, they grew used to the all-cash flyers left at their door and in their mailbox. And then something caught Nemani's eye. We got one letter one day. It looked a little bit disorganized, but it was handwritten. And there was a price, and I was like, that's not real. Because it was just, it was way above market. The letter was from an agent, and so Namani followed up with a phone call. It turns out that the interested client was considering Namani's home as a potential development site. It wasn't the big house getting the offer. It was the even bigger lot where the house was sitting. 20 feet by 100 feet is the most common lot size for a single-family home in Brooklyn. But Nemani's house was on a lot 35 feet by 160 feet. A lot that size allows a developer to construct a much taller building. Again, these guys are working those deals all day. They have an intimate knowledge of where it is, where it just was, and where it's heading. So we started the conversation. And within four months, there were like at least four parties who were interested as a development site without us doing any marketing. The developers who were the first to make an offer also expressed interest in buying the lots on either side of Namani. One of his neighbors was interested in selling, the other was not. And after months of negotiations, Namani and one of his neighbors sold their homes to an LLC called Linden TB. The listed closing price for Namani's home was just over $2 million. That means in just over two years, he managed to double his investment. And a few months later, Linden TB filed permits with the Department of Buildings to construct a nine-story, 67-unit apartment building on the two adjacent lots. The application specifies that the development will not include any affordable housing units. Standing in front of Namani's old house, it looks like it hasn't been inhabited for years. The windows are smashed in and much of the siding has been torn down. So it's, it's not gutted. That one's at least no. not gutted. No, it's just vandalized. He guesses the place might have been intentionally vandalized to preempt community efforts to save the Victorian homes before the city allowed demolition. It's a practice seen throughout the city, sometimes called scalping a building, so that there is little or nothing left to preserve. Namani's old home is an eyesore now, a far cry from the renovated house he lived in. 
He peeks through the green plywood wall erected in front of the house and shakes his head. It's not the same neighborhood he bought into. Literally, it's not the same neighborhood. You know, within 18 months, there was an article in the New York Times saying Lefferts Gardens is the new cool place to live, and the borders of Lefferts Gardens are from here to here. And so our house wasn't in Lefferts Gardens before, and now this New York Times article anointed our house to be in Lefferts Gardens. The lines are created by the real estate industry, right? Like, that's the marketing tool, is where is that line? Where does it exist? For the most part, I think, for the people who own, it helps them, right? For the people who are renters, it creates pressure. It's that simple. And if no one in your family has ever owned, it's hard to understand what it means to own. The dynamics of family history and what your family has been exposed to in terms of knowledge and access to resources is everything. It's everything. So it comes back to opportunities, expectations, and the big one, access to resources. And all of that begs a question we keep hearing from listeners. If I can only afford to move into one of these newly gentrified neighborhoods, how do I not be part of the problem? Here's how Elizabeth answered that question. You know, feeling guilty is kind of a useless, I think, very selfish reaction. You make yourself the star in your own drama. And I think that you should take your complicated feelings and, you know, open your eyes and talk to people and get involved. I think it'll make you a better person. And I think that people should learn from the people who have been in the community and learn the history of, you know, the rise of some of our institutions, like the Brooklyn Children's Museum and the decline of the public school systems and see where people are in trying to fix these things. Next week, what happens when people don't take that advice? Well, things get ugly. Real ugly. This man who's lived in this neighborhood all his life, who's gone to this park all his life, who celebrated his birthdays in this park when he was a kid, who's now a foreigner in his own neighborhood. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WNYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded and mixed by Casey Means. Sean Carlson is our researcher. Janet Babin and Bridget Bergen contributed a recording to this episode. And oops, we forgot to thank our archivist Andy Lancet last week. He found us that great John Lindsay tape. Terrace Blanchard composed our theme music. Thanks to our digital team, including Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Kevin Franz, Frank Reynolds, and Annie Shields. Jim O'Grady, Rebecca Carroll, Kai Wright, and I, D.W. Gibson, contributed to the reporting and producing of this episode. Our editor and executive producer is Karen Philbin. And before we go, have you started a conversation with a neighbor of a different race about gentrification? What happened? Call and tell us about your experience at 1-646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com. Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.